Hello and welcome to the TLDR podcast. I am Zach Michaelis, TLDR's Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by Ben Blissett, TLDR UK's lead writer. Um, So today we are going to be talking about the ethics and electability of lying, uh, specifically in British politics. Um, This is apropos of uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak getting community noted a a couple of times, which has been mildly embarrassing for him. Um, But as is custom on this podcast, before we get into that, we are doing our unreported stories. Ben, what is your unreported story? Yeah, so this is um, a UK one and this relates to the Labour Party. So last week there was some discussion about something referred to as access talks. So in the UK it's kind of a unique system where if you're elected, as the government, you don't have any time beforehand to sort of like get everything ready with the civil service and decision makers. Uh, you just become the government, which so, is really rare which by is very rare. standards. Yeah, I mean, so like America's the America, good example. Yeah, I was going to say America. You know, you're elected, you're president elect for a few months. Yeah. you have time to get to know decision makers and get to you know plan your move into government. In the UK, you're elected, and day one you're there, and you've got to just you're expected to just run the country. Yeah. Um, so in the sort of early 1960s, a convention developed where you know the government would basically allow the opposition party to come and have a look around the, the government departments. Uh, get to know the key decision makers there, get to figure out how things work, you know, um, the, the procedural guidelines, you know, policies that are going through, all of this, um, so that they know when they get those government departments how to actually run it. But the thing is, like many things in the UK uh, system, it's all by convention. Yeah. Sometimes the Prime Minister will sort of pre-arrange the, these things, so they'll just say, you know, if, if they ever ask, the default answer is yes. Other times they'll wait for the opposition party to actually formally ask them and then make a decision. Um, as things stand, no access talks have, have taken place. Uh, in the last two elections, when there have been handovers, it's been about 16 months before these... Oh, um, wow, so quite a long time Quite before. a long time. But we're, you know, the worst case scenario, it's now 12 months. So if the yeah. election... So the, the, it's, it's, it's definitely starting to narrow. And there's been some speculation that um, Rishi Sunak has said no to these talks when he was asked last year. And that's not verified, but there are some... Uh, allegations that, that that's what's happened but as I say there's no there's no legal requirement for him to do so and it's only by convention that these access talks take place um, so when those have taken place in the past is yeah. that because the polling has suggested 15 months out from the election that there might be a changeover? yeah yeah I think because it, as I say because it's all convention it yeah. all kind of depends on, on, on the day but like in in 1997 I think it was about 16 months before but like Jeremy Corbyn didn't get access talks uh, I don't actually know about that um, but probably not. But probably not. Okay. But 1997 and 2010, it was 16 months before. Um, so, it, you know, that—that that is, it's maybe not the default, but at least if it seems that a government yeah. is going to come into power, then you, you have quite a long time to be able to do that. But the, the clock's starting to tick down already. And with, you know, worst case now, it's 12 months out still. Yeah. So always scary to be reminded of how much of like sort of functioning British politics relies on convention, isn't it? I mean, yes. like, it's slightly wild. Well, another quite fun thing as well is that in 97, there were uh, no ministers, uh, shadow ministers, that were um, cabinet ministers in a previous Labour government. Oh. So they, they had no, no one had experience in government when they went in. As things stand, there were three with Labour. And some of the papers are sort of using that as a, yeah, access talks haven't happened, but don't worry, there's three, there's three people that have been in government before. Yeah. It's like, that's not, it's not quite the same thing. Um, but yeah, I just think it's one of those things that isn't really spoken about. It's not something that's very understood in, you know, in the UK. But as you said, if we're comparing to international standards, it's very unique that the government yeah. uh, 
you know, the incumbent government has no experience, no no chance to really figure out how government works before they get in. So it's a, it's a weird thing. Okay. Yeah. Um, so my unreported story is about food prices. It's a good story, actually. Mm. We very rarely do good news stories on this podcast or on the channel generally. Um, and basically, it's that the UN Food Price Index is... The latest data from December suggests that global food prices are down 10% year on year, which is great news. Yeah. And like high food prices are obviously bad for a whole load of reasons. I mean, in the Western world, like we associate that with like higher shopping costs and whatever. But you know, in much of the developing world, that's just starvation. That's really, really catastrophic. Um, but they're also just politically deeply destabilizing. Mm. I mean, for quite obvious reasons, in that like food accounts for so much of most household spending that high food prices mean high inflation across the board, and that obviously comes with a whole load of political, politically destabilizing effects, especially in the developing world, where high food prices really are the cause, very often a contributing factor to stuff like coups or mm. changes of government or protests. So why has it started coming down? So I remember that one of the reasons that it started going up was obviously war in Ukraine, Ukraine grain export, all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, so I mean, part of it is just that that disruption has been mitigated. Ukraine has found, I mean, for some of the year, there were, it was it was exporting via the Black Sea, but it's found other export routes, um, and some of it goes back, you know, via Europe, basically through to the West. And but I mean, the the reason it's sort of come down is that this is there's this has been the trend for many many years in that food prices globally have been falling for quite some time now. Um, but the, another reason it's really really good news is that there was a lot of chatter in the last like couple of years or so of analysts expecting sustained and structurally higher food prices for a variety of reasons but most conspicuously climate change and people were basically questioning whether or not global agriculture could cope with these sort of environmental changes um, implied by climate change mm. uh, and this is a really good data point it suggests that so far the sort of global like food system has held up relatively well um, yeah, so I just think that's a really great news story and it's defied expectations on the upside, which is always nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway. It's nice to have a story that isn't just cost of living's getting worse and everything's... everything's no. It's, it's nice to have you know, some good news for a no, change. I, I, I do agree. This takes us to the main bit of the podcast. Um, we are going to be talking about, well, lying generally in British politics, but this is sort of all because in the last like week or so, I don't know how many times, but Rishi Sunak has put up a couple of tweets or X, you know, things on mm. x.com, um, and community notes have yeah. basically corrected him. Yeah. So do you want to ask through the most recent one and also any of the ones that come the week yes. earlier? So there's quite a few actually. I mean, the most recent one is um, a, a tweet that he put out a few days ago about tax cuts so it's the and it, this is something that he's been community noted about quite a few times um, but but the most recent one was was he said specifically we've made tough decisions on the economy while supporting people through global shocks like the pandemic because of these tough decisions we're able to now cut taxes today's tax cut will put 450 pounds back in the pocket of the average worker and help them make ends meet now technically speaking if you look at one particular metric that is true. If you look at national insurance, yeah. if you look at the average earning of £35,000, then the decrease from 12% to 10% does account for £450, you know, £450 extra for working people. But national insurance isn't the only tax that people pay. Income tax, people also pay. And because the thresholds have been held and inflation uh, course, is high, yeah. more people are being dragged into higher tax brackets and the overall tax burden is at the highest um, in post-war history. So, 
if you look at one very specific instance, Sunak is correct. But if you look at the overall tax burden and you look at the overall amount of tax that people are paying, it's at an all-time high. So, the, you know, it's, it's this sort of, he's, he's, he was cherry-picking and he's yeah. been found out to be cherry-picking and the community notes have uh, got him for that. I think as well, it's probably worth um, pointing out actually how the community notes uh, thing works. Yeah, it's, sure. not, it's not something that uh, has always been a feature of Twitter. It's been sort of very much expanded since Elon Musk took over. Um, essentially, people can write, uh, you know, anyone can write these community notes on any post, but the way that they will show up is they need to be uh, found to be helpful by, and it's not just by a majority group, it's by um, people on Twitter with different opinions. And apparently there's a very complex algorithm to figure that out. It is technically open source, so people can look into it, but it's been described as like incredibly complicated. So it'll look at, um, you know. So we're not gonna explain it now. We're not gonna explain it now, I don't know how it works. <laughs> but yeah, essentially it's just different, different groups of people need to find it helpful. Uh, and lots of different people have been community noted for. Elon Musk has been community noted before. Uh, Joe Biden has, the White House account has, and Sunak frequently is at the minute. Yeah, so uh, what, I like this become a verb as well, to community note someone. Yeah, it's, good. it's so good, it's um, so good. So I think the next one's worth mentioning. We, you have one on your little list of notes here. We have mm. the Tax Cuts website. Yeah. Um, I think the reason this one is so notable is that this community note actually comes from one of our animators. So Jan, yeah. I, was, I, I, I mean, he basically put this community note up and it was the one the algorithm was selected. Yes. So what was this about? Yeah, so this was um, this was actually tweeted in a reply to a lot of different tweets that Sunak had done about tax cuts. So whenever he did one, he would then follow it up with, by the way, you can get your, you can figure out how much your uh, taxes have been cut by going to this website. So it literally just posts the link. But if you go to that link, you put in how much you're earning, and then it asks you for a load of information, like you know your, your name, your email address, all of this, um, and it'll tell you how much your, your tax cuts are. Um, but the interesting thing about this is that it, it's specifically set up to try and get your data so that you would subscribe to the Conservative Party mailing list. So it's a data harvesting tool. Um, and Jan put this community note up saying it's a data harvesting tool. Th there's third party things from like money saving expert that you can use that doesn't harvest your data to figure out how much your, your tax cuts account for. Um, and it, this isn't the first time that politicians have used these sort of like underhand tactics to get you to subscribe to something. There's a really infamous example from the uh, Vote Leave campaign in 2016 when Dominic Cummings set up a um, uh, sort of a giveaway where it would be you win 50 million pounds you predict every game at the European uh, Championship um, and a load of people signed up to that not knowing it was anything to do with politics in order to sign up you had to give your name then say how you'd vote in the Brexit referendum uh, and then uh, you'd be signed up but it was never really made clear that it was anything to do with politics they harvested all the data the likelihood of someone predicting all those games was so low they were fairly certain they wouldn't have to pay out anyway or even if they did it probably was worth it for the amount of data they, they collected um, but the difference with that is that they were trying to get, specifically get people who weren't interested in politics, get people signing up to football stuff. Uh, this is slightly different to that. But yeah, it's, it's wild that he was sort of caught out for that, trying to do a little cheeky data mining uh, tactic. And it was Jan that, that, yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. Jan that got him. Yeah, so basically, I mean, we have a whole load more here. Um, yeah. There are a couple more that are essentially sort of half-truths about tax and the tax burden. Yeah. And then there was one, uh, I think, basically from last week, where he claimed that the asylum backlog had been cleared. But this actually, was a big one, yeah. Yeah, but actually what seems to have happened there is it's about some cases being reclassified, and I think more, more conspicuously, 17,000 cases 
just disappeared off the database with no explanation. It wasn't like they were resolved or something. Um, they just sort of disappeared. And it might just be the home office, which wouldn't be off brand for the home office, <laughs> just hasn't been able to keep track of yeah. those 70,000 people. They've lost track of them. I mean, we stopped tracking basically undocumented arrivals at something like that they're living within the UK, I think in like 2015, mm. because we didn't have the administrative capacity to do so. Um, but I still want to move on past like the individual lies. Yeah, sure. So clearly, we basically got lots of half-truths. Yeah? Yes. Um, most of them on Twitter. Um, well, how do you think this plays elec electorally for Sunak? Because I think there's a sense, there's a sort of feeling in parts of British politics that actually lying can be quite an effective political tactic. So I think the conventional wisdom sort of pre-2019 was that if you lie or you do these half-truths that it'll have electoral consequences for you. Yeah. Um, and I think it was sort of you know, we always we, we always come back to this, you know, good chap theory of politics. There's nothing really, there's no mechanism to really call you out or for you to face any consequences for doing any lying other than sort of electorally. Um, but I think that sort of held for a long, for a long time. And a lot of, you know, politicians just assumed, you know, that that's a bad thing to do. The electorate will tell us off for it, so we won't do it. But I think 2019 was sort of the turning point. And I'm thinking specifically about in the lead up to that election, there was that whole, I don't know if you remember this, that whole Twitter fiasco where it was Fact Check UK, the concert, CCHQ oh, changed their Twitter account that, yeah. to Fact Check UK, and they were tweeting at the, li at the live TV debates, sort of calling out the Labour spokespeople at the time, um, and it wasn't made clear that that was actually just the Conservatives doing yeah. that. It was made to look like an independent fact-checker. And I remember at the time thinking this is going to, you know, this is a, a really blatant example of underhanded tactics, sort of half-truths and, and, and misleading. And they went on to win this massive majority. And I think since then, and that was, that was in an election campaign, that wasn't like years out for an election, that was, that was, that was in the lead-up to the election. And I think that sort of shattered this, this belief that um, if, you, if you lie, you'll have electoral consequences. People forgot about it. It was not, people didn't really care. It was very much the Brexit referendum. Other, other things mattered more. And I think since then, we've seen almost like a proliferation of these sort of half-truths. I know that politicians always do it. I know that this is just, you know, part of politics. But I think the more like egregious examples and the more sort of like blatant examples have definitely proliferated since, since 2019. I think Don't you think it's 2016 though? It's, I mean, the Brexit, I mean, the, the sort of archetypal case here is that advert, the Brexit advert on a bus, give the yeah. NHS 350 million. And I do think that for a lot of British politicians, that's when they decided that actually lying can be quite an effective political tactic. I'm not sure if that inference was correct I, there, if the causation was as direct as something made out to be. But I feel like that's the point. Yeah, no? I think the difference between 16 and 19 is that 16, it was sort of extra governmental actors. So Vote Leave was not part of government. They yeah. were the Nigel Farage lot. And they were, in fact, deliberately separated because they were worried about his tactics. And they tried to, to distance themselves from that 350 million pound claim. Like, the, the, the actual like Tory government um, leave EU campaign didn't, you know, wanted to distance themselves from that. So yeah, I mean that's a good example of that. Like, but I still think that that was that wasn't the government, and they were still trying to distance themselves slightly. But I think by 2019, it, the, the difference is the government was starting to use those tactics. I think that it took them those years to sort of figure that out. And you also have things like you know the prorogation scandal, all of this with Boris. Like, you had tons yeah. of different stuff of these sort of underhanded tactics that were previously assumed to be completely out of bounds. Um, that you should never do, um, but it was actually seen as, yeah, par for the course almost. Yeah, I do think in some sense, though, the, I, I think part of the, 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 it can be a mistake to focus too directly on just like the explicit lies. Mm -hmm. I think the more important question is whether or not the people, public thinks you're like trustworthy or yeah. honest in like a greater sense, because you can be, uh, you can avoid lying, you know, you can, if, 
but you can still be considered untrustworthy. You mm. know, if you only f focus on sort of selective truths or you like deliberately obfuscate, which is why I just don't think this has much electoral impact because I think basically people didn't think of Sunak as trustworthy in the yeah. first place. Maybe they did at the beginning of his premiership, but I don't think they do now. But I also think that more importantly, I don't think Starmer can necessarily draw a super clear line between him and Sunak in this respect, just because, and I think this is in part a consequence of the fact that he's not sort of outlining his policies too explicitly at this point, which makes him just look a little bit slippery. Mm. Um, but also because only a couple of months ago, there was that whole thing where he ran a whole load of slightly disingenuous attack ads against Sunak. Um, and I think that's a shame for British politics that like neither party can claim a monopoly or even like a can claim to be that significantly tr more trustworthy than the other mm. um, but I also think it's a political mistake from someone like Starmer I think that given that Sunak is clearly now committed to this slightly Johnsonite tactic of half-truths there's political capital to be gained from really going for like I'm the honest I am the sort of like trustworthy politician for what's worth I also think this is yeah. why Donald Trump's lies didn't hurt him too much in 2020 because I think that even though Clinton definitely didn't lie as much as Trump did um, or, 20, or 2016, sorry. Clinton nevertheless didn't have trustworthy vibes. Mm. Um, and so there was that sort of like equalizing, they both, for, to a significant I, fraction of the American electorate, seem untrustworthy. I think, I think as well, the other thing is, is that I think the public doesn't always grasp the difference between like the, the, the extent. Of the, so if, so uh, I agree with you about point, Starmer, yeah. is that, you know, the, the, those disingenuous attack ads. But other than that, I can't think of too many other examples where he's been as egregious as, you know, the things that Sunak's been, you know, community noted for. But because he's done that, it's now seen as Sunak has done it, Starmer has done it, they're the same. Yeah. Whereas in reality, I think um, um, Sunak has done that a lot more and, and all that, but it, it doesn't matter. He's done, it's, and then, and, That's uh, why I'm going back to the vibes. Yes, exactly. You've got an honest it goes, vibes. It goes back as well. Do you remember with the whole party gate stuff, there was that thing with Starmer and he was at, you know, Sabir Korma, that yeah. whole attack line, um, and that he, he'd had a beer when he was campaigning or something. And a lot of people went, well, he was breaking the COVID guidelines as well. Yeah. And if he was found by the police that that wasn't the case and, you know, journalists sort of except for the very right-wing papers sort of agree that that wasn't a, a breach of the rules in the same way it was almost seen as well Starmer broke the rules soon uh, Johnson broke the rules yeah they're, they're all the same sort of thing even if the degrees are different I think that it's just seen as if they've both done it they're all, they're all the same really yeah it is interesting I mean, I mean what the, the begs the question or raises the question rather like what why is it so hard for po I mean this is too big a question we're not gonna ask this now we should probably move on but it's very clearly very hard for politicians to, to paint themselves or to present themselves as like honest or yeah. trustworthy or to garner trust. Yeah. Um, and whether or not that's, I, I don't know enough, whether or not that's like a new phenomenon or just like a sort of maybe a function of the new media landscape or something like that is an open question. But I do think there's, there's something to that in that one of the reasons that lying just doesn't have the electoral costs it perhaps used to mm. is just because across the board, politicians really struggle to sort of present as honest or trustworthy or genuine in some like meaningful sense. And maybe that's not actually a change and we just think it is because we live in this particular era. But it does feel like that is, that there's a particular antipathy towards politicians on the basis that they all feel distrustworthy. I also think that the, the difference as well is that the proliferation of sort of social media and everything like that. Previously, um, it was seen as like the mainstream media and journalists and everything would, would call out if someone's lying uh, or, or not. 
um, and now any, anybody can. It's almost like the, the mainstream media doesn't have a monopoly on, on truth anymore. Like yeah. previously when they did, you know, they would say when someone's like, they'd do all of their research, they'd say, this, you know, this politician, that, that, is, that is an untruth. Now it doesn't matter if they say it or not, or not. some guy on Twitter can say yeah. that they're, they're lying and it holds just as much weight. Like this, yeah. So everybody seems to be lying because um, everybody has a, has a claim to that now. Yeah, if you want the truth, subscribe to TLDR. <laughs> There you go. Yeah. Easy answer. What we're saying is that we should have the monopoly on truth. We do. Uh, anyway, let's move on to the last and probably most fun bit of this podcast. It is the Global Leader Leaderboard. Um, for those of you who don't know, this is when we basically look over, well, normally it's a week, but it's whenever we lasted the podcast, so more like a month this time. Um, and we move one of the global leaders on the board up and one of them down. We each do that. Um, so Ben, should we start with down and yeah, finish on a high? Yeah, yeah that's how sure. We do it. So who is going down for you? Well, okay. So the person I'm moving down, sort of unsurprisingly, given what we've spoken about today, yeah. is Rishi Sunak. Um, obviously, him being community noted and sort by of Yan. humiliated yeah. by Yan, <laughs> yeah, by Yan of all people. Um, it's just it's, it's just such a huge amount of community notes that, that he's been given as well. It's like nearly every tweet he's got has been community noted, and it's sort of humiliating. And it goes without saying that he's also you know horribly behind in the polls and is almost certainly going to lose an election this year. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's not doing well. Before I get up and move him, I'm going to go. Yeah. My person going down is Donald Trump. Um, Donald Trump has been going up recently uh, because the polls do look quite good for him, and yeah. I think that the Biden is, is really struggling at the moment, both in terms of foreign policy and, well, he's struggling to get credit for any of his domestic policies. Um, but the reason I'm putting Trump down is pretty obviously since we last did the podcast, he's been banned from running by state courts in Maine and Colorado. And also it's worth noting that the Nikki Haley campaign really is picking up a bit of steam. Mm. So I do think that that is, it's, it's at least more possible that Trump loses the Republican nomination than it was, let's just say like a couple of months ago. I mean, for example, when we did our who is Nikki Haley and can she beat Trump video, the consensus in the comments was like, this is never gonna happen. I mean, people pointing out that Nikki Haley was polling in sort of single digits. That's no longer the case. Nikki Haley now has firmly established herself as the main challenger to Donald Trump. Um, so I think that is who's moving down for me. Who yeah. is going up for you? Well, um, for those who live in London, they'll be unsurprised to hear that Sadiq Khan is going up for me because uh, yesterday there was uh, talk that um, there would be a, a massive strike uh, of, of TfL up until Friday. And at the last, literally 20 minutes before this strike was meant to happen, um, it was cancelled and it sort of reflects very well on um, on Sadiq Khan. Also, interestingly, Boris Johnson put out a tweet saying this is what would, ha you know, th this is an example of what would happen if Labour were in government. And, uh, you know, right after that, the strike was cancelled, everything seemed to go well and more talks uh, have been scheduled. So he's averted a massive TfL strike. I also thought it was interesting that, you can't see my head now, but I thought it was interesting that Khan he deliberately framed it as a sort of like this is what this is what a Labour government could do and he yeah. basically said that you know you can talk to unions yes. and that you can negotiate with them um, and I think it's interesting two reasons one obviously it's a very clear electoral tactic but the politics of unions are sort of back in quite um, an interesting way it feels very sort of unions late back, 20th century maybe. they are yeah. back um, anyway my person going up is Ayatollah Ali Khamenei Whoa. And Khomeini's going up at first glance, you know, you might think that Khomeini's having a bad time given that it looks like Israel have sort of defeated Hamas in northern Gaza or they've sort of claimed to. Um, and it looks like attacks on Hezbollah, which are sort of uh, Iranian 
proxy group are escalating in southern Lebanon. Um, but I actually think that from the Iranian perspective, they have been able to massively weaken uh, Israel, um, not militarily, but diplomatically, without getting directly involved. Um, and, and therefore without sort of triggering an American-led retaliation. Uh, and they've also, you know, they really have had a pretty significant impact, or as much of an impact really on the rest of the world as they could do via the Houthis um, without triggering regional escalation. So the fact that the Houthis have continued to disrupt shipping in the Red Sea and the currently the, I think it's called Operation Prosperity, with the US-led maritime force that's supposed to be keeping the peace and encouraging commercial ships to continue transit through there has basically failed. Um, and at a time of right, a time of like recording, uh, commercial transit is still being redirected around the Cape of Good Hope. Yeah. Um, that is like that is pretty good news from uh, Iran's perspective. And I think that sure, superficially, it looks like Israel have you know defeated Hamas in some sense. But history does tell us that normally defeating Palestinian nationalist groups only just leads to like a more violent and more extremist situation mm. a couple of years later that's often more geopolitically difficult to deal with. Um, so I think that the Iranians, given that their arch enemy is, is, is basically Israel, will be pretty happy with, with how things are panning out and the fact that the, as the war continues to escalate regionally, the odds of sort of Israeli normalization with the rest of the Arab world, which would have been catastrophic from Iran's sort of strategic perspective, becomes increasingly unlikely. Yeah. Um, so that is everything, I think, for today's podcast. Um, thank you very much for watching. We, we hope you enjoyed it. And join us again next week for another, another version, another edition. Yeah. Uh, another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Nice.